Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 48 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. This episode is brought to you by my friends at Unsettled. Unsettled is a 30-day co-working retreat experience for entrepreneurs, creatives, freelancers, and folks going through intentional transitions. They lead retreats in some of the most inspiring destinations in the world, Cape Town, Barcelona, Bali, just to name a few. I did uh, Medellin in Colombia with them last year, and it was everything I could have imagined. Beautiful apartment, great co-working space, incredible community, and you get to be a part of their global community that they've created, and lots of incredible local connections and experiences. Go to beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and they're going to give you $100 off, so do yourself a favor, beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and prepare for one of the best months of your life. Hey guys, welcome to the show where every week we're helping you create an extraordinary life. In the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how to create a business and a mission that pulls you forward. And today on the show, I'm talking to Sharif Joynson. Sharif comes on to talk about Japanese sword fighting, which I'm excited about. And I also review the book, Anything You Want by Derek Sivers. And something I want to talk to you today is something very personal to me. It's about overcoming resistance. And I want to give you some support at uh, overcoming resistance. I feel resistance a lot when I'm in my business and I'm trying to create content and put stuff out and get this podcast out for you guys. And the the concept of resistance was, of course, popularized by Stephen Pressfield when he wrote The War of Art. If you haven't read that book, it's a must read for any creative of any kind. You keep it on your desk and you just refer to it anytime you need it. And it's this idea that whenever we're trying to create something, be it art or writing content or a business, there is this form of resistance that is in direct contradiction to anything we're trying to create. And Pressfield talks about being a warrior and every day fighting that resistance, that every day you wake up, you have to sit down and you have to go to war against the resistance in order to get your content out. And there's three things that have really helped me because, boy, do I feel this resistance. And you know me, I'm a procrastinator. I'm always putting stuff off and, you know, why do something today that can be done tomorrow or left to the last minute? So I've had to come up with ways to fight against that resistance in order to get stuff out and be consistent in my uh, creation. And the first thing I do is I have structures and rhythms set up that set me up for success. So on a macro scale, I have the podcast planned out for the next couple of months on a big wall planner so I know exactly what guests are coming on, what I'm going to be talking about in each episode. And then during the week, I have days dedicated to different things in my business. The first day, Monday, I know is visionary day. It's work on the business and try and move things forward. Tuesday, I work with my one-on-one clients. Wednesday, I connect with new people. Thursday, I do more work on the business. And then Friday, I leave free. So I always have these structures so I know going into each day what I need to be doing on that day. And then on a micro level, when I need to create something, when I need to write or create the podcast, there's two small things I do. I pour myself a green tea and I put my headphones on and I hit play on a Spotify playlist called ESM Study Music. And there's something about it that my body, when it hears that music and it feels that green tea going into my body, it knows that it's game time and that I'm here to produce. So create those systems and structures that tell you hey, we're about to create something. The second thing is you've got to let the shitty stuff flow out first. When you start creating, it's not going to be gold to start with. It's like an old hose that's been left for a few months. You turn the hose on and the first thing that comes out is the brown, rusty water. And then after a few minutes, you get that clear, fresh water coming out. It's the same with creativity. You have to be willing to let the shit come out first in order to get to the gold. So I know for the first 20 minutes that I'm writing anything or creating a video, it's going to be terrible but I need to go through that process to get to the good stuff. 
And the third thing is I create deadlines. Now, deadlines can go one of two ways. I used to have deadlines and they used to put more pressure on and then I would do nothing. I would just react to the pressure. I'd just fuck it up completely. So now I use deadlines like a warrior. When I feel the deadline coming on, I feel the pressure of that deadline and that pressure gets me excited and I know I have to go at it to get stuff done. And I have a couple of people on my team for different things and they're creating deadlines on my behalf all the time. So they're emailing me and saying, hey, when have you got this? I need this file. I need that article. And I use those deadlines to get me into action and push through that resistance. So those are my three things. Create structures and rhythms that set you up for success. Understand that the shitty stuff is going to come out first and you need to go through that to get to the gold and give yourself some solid deadlines, but approach them like a warrior. When you feel the pressure, let that drive you. And this week I'm reviewing the book called Anything You Want by Derek Sivers. And the tagline is, it's 40 lessons for a new kind of entrepreneur. And I know the type of person that you are, you are a new kind of entrepreneur. So this is the perfect book for you. Derek really run his businesses and his life in a very unique way. And it's a way that I find very, very appealing. He approaches entrepreneurship in a very simple manner. And I think, as Derek says in the book, a lot of people are out there to try and impress a jury of you know, MBA professors. We're trying to do business so that it looks good. We want to have fancy business plans and nice cards and a professional website. Do everything perfectly to try and, and do it the right way, to try and do it the MBA business way. Whereas Derek is very much the opposite of that. He likes to do everything simply. And a good example of that is maybe how he goes about hiring staff. So he said, you know, you can waste a ton of time and a ton of money trying to find staff through websites and recruiters and everything. But the best thing to do is go and ask your best staff, who do you know or do you have any friends that would love to work here, that are like you, that would enjoy working here? And as he said, nine times out of 10, they know somebody, they recommend someone, uh, it's someone they like and they get on with. And if you like that employee, naturally, that's going to be a good fit for his business. So he's gone about growing his staff by doing that. Seems so simple, but that's just one of the examples of, of something that he does. And he's also very clear that when you create a business, that's your opportunity to create something that is your perfect expression of yourself. So it's not just about making money. It's about creating something in the world that expresses who you are and expresses what you want to bring into the world. And he says, uh, he calls it, you get to create a mini universe where you control all of the laws. This is your utopia. So he's looking at business in a completely different way. And the final thing that he reminds us, and it's something that businesses so easily forget, is that it's really all about your customer at the end of the day. It's it's not about your investors or your employees. At the end of the day, you're trying to create an incredible product. And that's where this week's quote comes from. He says, never forget that absolutely everything you do is for your customers. Make every decision, even decisions about whether to expand the business, raise money or promote someone according to what's best for your customers. If you're ever unsure what to prioritize, just ask your customers the open-ended question. How can I best help you now? then focus on satisfying those requests. It's a fantastic book. It's back to basics. If you're a, a new kind of entrepreneur and you want to uh, do business differently, this is the book to read. Anything you want by Derek Sivers, go and check it out. And my guest for this week is Sharif Joinson. Sharif is a former soldier, martial artist, and he's really focusing his life on helping men to create more boundaries in their life and learn some of the things that they were never taught at school. He goes in pretty deep about his own journey 
and his upbringing and how he survived his parents' divorce at five years. And I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. So enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful Sharif Joinson. Yeah, so about me, I am... So where did you grow up? You grew up in the UK? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, London, my whole life. I've uh, passed a couple of months. I was in the Philippines when I was 18. 18 turned 19 out there, and I was uh, training in the martial arts out there. But apart from that, I've lived in London my whole life, and that's where I work now. And yeah, I love my city. Yeah, awesome. And what were some of the defining moments growing up for you in the UK? Specific and relevant to the UK, or yeah, or just what? If we look back at your life and your childhood, what were the moments that it defined you? Oh Jesus! <laughs> Jumping straight in. I am. Um, I don't mess around. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there's two answers, I suppose. One is in terms of my my coaching that I do, and also the self-defense, unarmed combat stuff that led to that. Where that all came from was growing up in to an emotionally unhealthy home environment, i.e. my parents and their uh, divorce when I was five and my dad's response to that, which was not good or healthy for anybody. And uh, yeah, some events around that, my, my mum being a single mum and having a series of boyfriends and bad relationships after that. And there's all that kind of stuff, and it's all quite dark. But funnily enough, when you, you asked me just then what were the defining moments growing up in the, in the UK, I had a, a little sort of flash to when I was, I guess I was, would have been about seven years old uh, in the first Gulf War, you know, when we went to Iraq. I remember running home from school because I really wanted to see on the news what was happening. Because it was like movie stuff but for real because there's this bad guy you know Saddam Hussein I'd see him on the news he's got his moustache and his moron like he's like a real bad guy <laughs> yeah it's like a, proper you, Team America style yeah I run home and I was just fascinated with with that with the, the war and I guess um, that's where I started to become interested in the army and um, looking back in hindsight I, I wonder if that was some sort of metaphor that this bad guy on TV that we had to protect ourselves against or not protect ourselves against, um, but go and take out or whatever was some sort of metaphor for me, for my dad, you know, who up until that point, yeah, was the bad guy in my life in a way. So yeah, that's some defining moments. So I grew up in my, with my mom and my sister, uh, she's five years older. And so I was in a household of, of only females. And I took on the role of man of the house in, in various ways, unconsciously, obviously. And in hindsight, I can see exactly where I did that. I tried to step into that role of protector of my mom and, and sister. And I realize now how unhealthy that is and how, unfortunately, not much was done to tell me that that was my job. You know what I mean? So mm. that led to a whole series of things and I could I could really go into all that about me or into it as a subject and go off on that but my understanding of that whole dynamic now of, of how we grow up and the lessons that we learn before the age of six or thereabouts really shape everything 
we, we're going to do in our life, especially in our relationships. And I've been kind of fascinated with that subject since I was a kid. Actually, I always wondered, how did that marriage go wrong? What do I have to do to not be like that guy? And, you know, I, I was taking an interest in psychology from really young. Yeah, it's interesting. And, like, uh, I never went through that uh, separation. My parents are still together. But the reality is a lot of people, a lot of kids will go through that. And a lot of people have been through that. You know, the one thing I always hear is that you, you end up blaming yourself. As a little kid, you don't understand that there are things outside of you. You know, that everything is all about you. So therefore, if it's all about you, if something happens that's bad, you, that must be something you've caused. Yeah, and one step further is not just that's bad, it's I'm bad. Yeah. You know, uh, that's the, the message we all take in. And children are naturally narcissistic they we all believe we're the center of the universe so any everything is some not, yeah <laughs> yeah just a few right <laughs> i mean you know so everything that happens must be because of us in some way it's quite ridiculous and, and ludicrous and from the rational adult brain but that part of your brain didn't even exist when you was five six yeah. you know um so did you feel yeah. that with your dad you felt like you were responsible for your dad's behavior or that you'd caused it somehow? Interestingly, I, I'm not sure about that. If I did, it was, it's really unconscious. Mm. I don't have any feeling now of, or any memory, any sign that I had this kind of, it's my fault thing. Whereas, uh, just to give you a little insight into, into my sort of relationship with my kids and, and them, I'm separated from their mum. And I'm in a, you know, a very good and healthy relationship now. But I see in my son that, that thing of it, it was my fault. You know? right. But I don't think I absorbed that. No, I think if I did, it was very subtle. I think my main thing was, to be honest, uh, dangerous. Uh, so that's sort of the danger, dangerous environment that I grew up in. That was the beginning of that. That was the first danger I ever experienced was my own death. And uh, just to be really uh, clear as well, I'm, I have a relationship with my dad now and he's a, a very different man now. So just to, I feel like I should say that. But yeah, I think my, my thing was, okay, dad's become a threat to all of us, especially mum. I'm going to protect her against him. But of course, as a kid, then the question is, who protects, who's protecting you? And I remember being asked that by a, a school counsellor or something like that because my mum put me into a lot of therapy because of all the sort of behavioural issues I was having. And I remember being asked that question, like, well, who's protecting you? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, not something you think about. Mm. Yeah, I didn't at the time. Mm. This uh, idea of you being obsessed with war is hilarious to me in some way that you would you know, run home and it's like this, this, this giant version of the war that you play in the park when you're kids and that it's playing out on TV and it's real life and everything. So how did that go on to shape you? You joined the military? Yeah, much later, although I tried when I was a teenager. And then just uh, before I go into that, what you said before reminded me that if you look at many pictures of me as a kid, I always have some sort of weapon in my hand, right. either a sword or a gun. I was always, I was always packing. Man. Really just fine. I was good to go. And uh, yes, particularly the sword has always been has always had a place in my life in one way or another. That's so interesting. It is, it is. Especially um, now, maybe you know, I'm 
doing this uh, learning the Japanese sword and that is my primary practice I would say at the moment in terms of it's my spiritual practice almost really or it's getting there hopefully with the war thing yeah so I mean I would play soldier and I was obsessed with, with army stuff as a kid and then I attempted to go to an army college straight out of secondary school or high school as, as it's known in America and maybe in Australia and uh, due to medical reasons, they told me you need to come back in two years because of some like headache medication that I'd been on in, in school, which to be honest, I didn't really need. I actually was just taking it to get out of school. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that backfire. You can't win. Yeah. And, and during that time, it was like, okay, I need to get a job. And I started working in retail. And I, within these two years, I had some sort of management position and I was on this sort of, I had a a job, a career, I guess. And uh, I just didn't go back and, and join again. And it wasn't until I was 27. I was like, I was in a, quite a weird place professionally. And I was like, okay, if I don't do this, I'm going to regret it my whole life. So I joined the Army Reserves instead. So mm. that's a part-time Army, you know, you've got that all over the, the world. Yeah, so I did that. And I did that for about four years. Yeah, I'm out now. And that was really good. I'm very glad that I did that for various reasons. Could you see, you know, if you're obsessed with swords and guns as a kid, I, I imagine some of those people get into the military and go way too far with it and like you're <laughs> really obsessed and become kind of weird uh, soldiers. Yeah, man. Was there any of that? Especially in the reserves. Right. That's where you <laughs> yeah. get a lot of um, what we call Walter Mitties. They're basically, uh, they live in a fantasy. Yeah. Same thing in the self-defense world. You get a lot of people that it's just that they're living some sort of trying to fill out some James Inside Bond. Inside a video that. game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like a, a video game that you, it's like cosplay, you know. And uh, <laughs> Cosplay with swords and guns. Yeah, real ones. Yeah, real ones. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And I, I've tried very hard not to be that. But it's in me, you know, to, to get into or carried away with things. And I have to check myself and say, okay, keep it real. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So do you still, are you still in the reserves? Can you still be called up? Um, no, I'm, I'm out now. And um, I never even completed my, my training. I never really got beyond the basic training phase. I never got um, sort of qualified with a, an actual role. Hmm. Uh, although I was going to, to be a, a driver in a logistical uh, regiment. What I really enjoyed was all the basic training. That's the infantry, the sort of combat stuff that everybody has to do. Chefs, clerks, everything. Mm. And that was the stuff I love. But uh, no, I'm out now. Can I be called up? I mean, if some random World War Three scenario happened, I imagine anybody who served and is still within age could get a brown envelope through the yeah. post that's um, on Her Majesty's service. You Come know, and join like, us. Yeah, everybody knows what that envelope is. <laughs> you get something through the post, you know who it's from. So what is it? <laughs> yeah, that's intense. So tell me more about the how you got into the Japanese sword. Yeah, so I started in the martial arts from about seven, probably around the time I was running home to look at Saddam on the news. And uh, that was karate, so that was a Japanese martial arts. So my first exposure to martial arts was Japanese. Mm. And after that, I dabbled and experimented and tried various other martial arts. But there was something about uh, Budo, the Japanese martial arts, that really spoke to me because there's a deep internal aspect to it which I think everybody knows through the movies and stuff so that really spoke to me and I attempted to teach myself some sword 
with through books and stuff. Uh, so, and that as a teenager, I've always had Japanese swords in one way or another, uh, training swords. And yeah, just uh, last year, I just started training. I found a, a teacher here in London who somehow I'd never heard of. Yet he's he's amazing, and he's been this thing for years, and I'd never even come across him before. Ninjas are like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're invisible, you know. They're invisible. You can't find them. <laughs> yeah. It's the hardest thing trying to find a ninja teacher. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a meme. Yeah. <laughs> we need to make one. Yeah, we do. That's funny. So he, he teaches you, what, the, the you learn with real swords or you learn with... So you start with a wooden sword called the Bokken, but it's shaped. It's got that distinct curvature of the mm. Japanese sword. And then you move on to uh, Mogito, which is a, a metal sword that is not sharp, although it's, it's kind of made in the same way. So it's a, it's a you know, fairly specialist piece of kit. They're expensive, you know. Mm. And then you move on to, I mean, you will still always use the bucket and always use the Mogito. But at a certain level, you're allowed to buy a Shinken, which is the sharp blade. And with the, the role for that is to, for cutting live you know, real targets. Mm. So each, each kind of sword has its, its function and it's not like you don't touch the wooden sword ever again. So it's just different, different things for different training modalities. But you need a license. Mm. Uh, you need a license, which is not that difficult, to be honest. But uh, you can't, in the UK, you can't walk around with, with weapons. <laughs> a huge samurai knife. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, to me, it feels a bit weird that, you know, sword fighting is something that's used to kill people, right? How, how do they treat that now in modern times? Well, there's two, two sort of things with that. One is that it's a metaphor, you know, there's something very symbolic about the sword and cutting through things. And if you look at so many deities from the East, they often have swords and it always represents the cutting through delusion illusion and ignorance and you know all of that kind of stuff and so practicing with the sword is as a part of a bigger picture of personal development and spiritual practice is symbolic in that way and the enemy is symbolic of your own ego and oh, i love that yeah yeah i mean it's 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 beautiful stuff it's very relatable you know when you're doing it you can feel that you literally feel changes happening in inside you wow and, that's um, so cool it, it is cool. And here's the, the other part to it, which is also cool, which I find cool anyway, which is, and this is also true of the unarmed combat that I've discovered in the, the sort of self-defense stuff that I do, is that, you know, lots of martial arts claim to be about internal development and have this spiritual aspect and stuff, but their techniques are kind of like, mm, yeah, that doesn't look like any kind of fighting I've seen, you know, and that's not really going to work outside the pub on a mm. Saturday night, you know? Mm -hmm. Nobody really does that. You're not really going to take his wrist and flip him over. And, you know, that's so an interesting thing is when you train for the real deal, like when you really train to become really effective, then spiritual stuff happens. So what I found through quite hard training in the unarmed combat and actually pressure testing it and training in such a way that you get kind of injured and you injure people accidentally, you know, it's kind of hard. Then some sort of, softening happens and some sort of a wet opening happens mm. same thing with the sword is my when i went for my first lesson i went in with the mind of i want to know 
if in some hypothetical situation, some weird scenario, I had this sword and some other maniac just entered my house, whatever, with a sword, could I, with this training, actually kill this, this person? This is the best scenario ever. Yeah, I mean, if that ever happened, Jesus Christ, you know, yeah. what kind of neighborhood are you living in? You know? <laughs> but, um, and in the, in the ensuing sword fight, <laughs> he won. Yeah. So the, to answer that question, or the, to answer my question in that, it was a yes. So I feel that the training I'm doing now, although it's quite long, it's a long process to get there, it's kind of a long roundabout way in a way. Yeah, we're training for the actual event. Right. So if you ever had to pick it up, I mean, like my question is, I'm looking at my, the sensei and I'm thinking, could you? And it, yeah, you could, for sure. Yeah. You know, and that's where the spiritual stuff starts to happen. Otherwise, you just pretend it, you know. Wow, yes, you actually have to embrace it as real in order to get the shifts. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've got to be careful with the way I say this and throw in a hundred disclaimers, but um, the cool answer is, I am going there genuinely to learn how to kill with a sword. You yeah. know? But it's not really about that, but it yeah. is. You know it what is, I mean? But it isn't. Totally, <laughs> yeah. And you get all the benefits from embracing it that way. Yeah, I mean, it just, I mean, it just makes sense. If, if you were to meet somebody who you would expect some, where you could feel something from them as a result of their training, it would mm. be because their training is real. Does that make sense? As opposed yeah. to like so, so many martial arts, oh, I'm a fifth dad in this arm flailing thing. You know, it's like, well, it looks Is that the official deep. name for it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't sign up for that. Fighting. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound as cool as sword fighting. No. <laughs> so what, what's the spiritual things that you get out of it? What are the spiritual shifts that you've had through that, that training? Um, well, with the sword practice, it's incredibly early days for me. And right. I, I claim to have any sort of uh, spiritual epiphanies from that now, my teacher would probably not let me in the dojo ever again. From the sword practice, I do, I do feel something. I feel more centered and I feel I'm able to open through my own closure more. Because, uh, you know, I've mentioned this uh, elsewhere, but the interesting, fascinating thing for me in the sword practice is that in order to become effective at this fighting, you have to be incredibly empathic in order to feel the other person and their intent and also feel what's going on in you and be open to all of that. So that's interesting and that's helping me stay open in, in various area, other areas of my life. But um, gen, most of the sort of personal changes, positive changes I've experienced through training has been through the unarmed training, my own training, the other stuff that I teach. You know, I, I don't do much of that hard training anymore. You know, I haven't for quite a while, and I think it's quite obvious. I, I don't look like I'm training for fighting, and that's because I'm kind of not. I'm too busy teaching others. So I am softening and softening all the time, and that's kind of what I'm wanting to do. Mm. But there was a time, I mean, years, like a good few years, where I was closed and intense and, like, really in it and preparing mm. all kinds of badness that statistically was probably never going to happen to me and hopefully never does. But that create some changes. I know what openness feels like because I also know what extreme closure feels like, extreme um, defensiveness and extreme ego and mm -hmm. all of that. You know, it got pretty dark for, for a while. Oh, interesting. And that's, so you moved in towards men's work, right, where you're helping men with that kind of thing. 
So what, yeah. what led you into that? Was it all of this, this understanding of this and then your childhood and the psychology of everything? Yeah, it kind of all mashes together like that, as you, you could probably imagine. And as you can also imagine, most of the people who came to train with me and come to train with me are men. And so what I, I had a weekly group class uh, for a few years. I don't do that anymore. I do workshops every couple of months and lots of one-on-one training. So spending one-on-one time with men was really fascinating for me because as, as I said before, I've been sort of reading people and psychology since I was really young, since I was really little. And initially it was sort of so that I could read situations at home and know when things were going to be bad. But that has helped me just become a reader of people in, in general. And so looking at my guys and what they were struggling with, you know, after a good few sessions, you kind of realize you're not really here to learn mm. how to stand against a mugger. That's not, you, you know, you've got the wrong end of the stick in a way. But we can help you there through this. It's like I, I realized that myself and my students, we all struggle with boundaries in one way or another and self-esteem. And is rather than go, okay, stop everything, screw this, let's go and do some therapy instead. All right. No, it's like, okay, so how do we make this the therapy? That's a tough sell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, for men, right? I mean, for you know, sure. trying to get men to talk or even listen is difficult. Yeah. But if you can tell them, hey, I can show you how to kill with your bare hands, then they go, ah. <laughs> but the funny thing is, like I said, it's, it is actually a, a legitimate path of personal development is, is through learning violence. You mentioned uh, boundaries, and I'm, I'm fascinated with boundaries at the moment, mostly because I've struggled with this. And I feel, you know, like my own energy, I'm very empathic. And it's very easy for my energy to be sucked dry, you know, and mm-hmm. if you don't have any boundaries, that's something that happens very easily to me. I guess, how do you look at boundaries and, and their importance for men? And how do you implement boundaries? Yeah, good question. Yeah, boundaries has been a big one for me over the last few years, understanding them because I, I didn't have any either and I'm still working on it all the time. And so what I find interesting with boundaries is when we say boundary, I think the image all of us tend to get is like a this kind of fence thing around me. That's my boundary to stop whatever coming in and uh, too much leaking out. Quite aggressive, quite heavy. Yeah, and external. And, you know, and it is that as well. But really, boundaries, when I, I'm not sure exactly what what I was reading or what I was listening to, but I had something happened where I suddenly had a reframe on on boundaries. And I realized I have to, the boundary is actually something I set with myself, not to other people. It might on the surface look like no to somebody but what I'm really saying no to is what I will allow into my life or not what I want for me and don't want for me so the ultimate way to develop boundaries is to really establish the terms by which you want to live and who you want to be and who you want to show up as what you will accept in your life and what you won't and then it just becomes like a sort of creating this vehicle through which you can move through life. And it's not really about making sure nobody fucks with you all the time. Like, oh, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, like keeping that. the sword next to you at all times, not carving boundaries out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that was, yeah. That was a good I mean, one. 
Yeah, I mean, with a sword analogy, I suppose it, it instead of it being about cutting this person down so they, they don't infringe on your boundary, it's more like what sort of boundaries do I need to set with myself before I can pick this up? And that's why you have to go through a lot of training mm. before you have a live blade because your training is boundaries within yourself. The way you grip the sword, the way you pass it to somebody else, the way you handle it is all sort of boundaries. Because if you didn't have the boundaries, you'd just pick it up and and then chop your own hand off or something. You know? Yeah. And have you got some practical examples of how you use, you've used boundaries or somewhere where it's helped you, internal boundaries? Yeah, I think lately it's showing up a lot in my time and I've become... It's a big one. Yeah, man. Um, I mean, as you know, it's, it's like the most precious thing because it's literally the, the sand dial of your life from the moment you're born, it's, it's on. And yeah. you, you know, it, it's finite. So um, where you spend that time is really important. And since I've become more aligned with my purpose, not to sound too data-ish, <laughs> my boundaries around my time have become really, like I know, because sometimes I'll, I'll get kind of really agitated with something and impatient, and it's because it's kind of wasting my time, you know? So I need to, to look at that. Yeah, recently I've said, I've walked away from certain conversations because it's like, this is an epic waste of my time. And how does that look? Like, how do you do that? Um, so recently there was, um, it's the first time I've experienced this actually, is uh, I was getting a lot of uh, negative attention online in a certain kind of uh, forum centered around the self-defense stuff that I do. And they started, the, the attention moved towards the coaching that I do. And I was basically getting flamed and torn apart and, you know, there was keyboard warriors giving their opinion on everything that I was doing. They're the best. Oh, they're awesome. Mm. What I was doing wrong. And I took it first as an opportunity because somebody pointed it out to me, said, hey, you might want to look at this. People are talking about you over here. Because obviously I have an online presence, you know, in for what I do. So all my material was getting kind of critiqued. And so first I was watching it and I thought, okay, what can I take away from this? What do I need to learn? Because there's some, I'm sure there's valid points being made here and I'm always open to, to learning. But also what can I clarify? So I did get involved a little bit and I put some time into it to respond and clarify and thank people for their criticism, but also point out where people were just being dickheads as well. But in a, in a subtle way, I tried to be subtle. Maybe I wasn't. In the end, I just felt like this isn't... The, the thing that really came to my mind wasn't even me and my time. It was actually my students and the people who I train and my clients. And I thought, my energy is going here. It was upsetting me. It, was, it kind of messed with my, my sleep patterns. And, you know, it was on my mind quite a bit because it was mm. the first time I've had... Yeah, it's understandable. ...tear the shit out of me online. And, um, yeah, and then it just occurred to me, this is not my purpose. This is not my mission. So I I've very politely and as openly as I could sort of exited the conversation. I left the group and um, God knows what is being said. You know, now I, have, I don't know because I don't have eyes on it anymore. But um, that was one example where I was like, okay, thank you. I think I've said everything I could here. Thanks for pointing out certain things. And they did. And it drew my attention to, to some stuff that I uh, thought, okay, 
valid points. I'll make some changes. So it's a really good example because I think that what comes up for me is how often we feel that we need to defend ourselves. And sometimes I see it with parents, you know, parents that are overbearing or accusatory or, you know, whatever it is, or mm. the online one's a good one as well. Somebody accused me the other day of, of buying Instagram followers. <laughs> Which, if you know me, I, yeah, uh, I probably should have. It would be a lot easier. But if you know me, I, you know, anything that sounds too hard and complicated. So yeah. the idea of it is pretty funny. But I found myself defending myself and I thought, wow, yeah. it's just, I don't actually have to do this. I don't have to, just because I've been accused of something or tried to be pulled into a conversation, I actually have no obligation to engage with this. And so I just remove myself from it. Mm. And it felt really good. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. And I think that the automatic thing is feeling like you need to defend yourself or you have to engage anytime somebody tries to pull you into something. Yeah. You know, and there's so many examples of, of various ways this shows up, but it's like, you know, I never got involved in, in the pickup scene and all that kind of stuff. But I'm vaguely aware of it because I've had friends and uh, students who have sort of been in that scene. And there's a the thing idea of men um, going out and being able to pick up women or finding yeah. hacks that they can easily pick up women. Yeah, I mean, essentially it comes down to learning social skills. <laughs> and there's, a, there's a, one way or another. And there's a branch of that that is actually how to deal with other men. So basically it's when guys are in clubs and some other guy moves in on the girl you're trying to chat up and all this kind of bullshit. But there's an interesting thing, which is, so you've got this dynamic where there's a guy, there's two guys and then a girl that they're both trying to impress. When one guy says to the other, like makes a kind of joke, a, a derogatory sort of joke, the other guy is then in a way, or the initial feeling is that he's forced to then qualify himself to the other person like to say on oh, well no I'm not or whatever it is even if it's subtle and even if it's jokey the power dynamic is now you just had to answer to him so you're always when somebody says some shit the moment you respond the power dynamic is they've said jump and you've jumped mm. right so and there's something incredibly uncomfortable about that and this is what trolling is about trolling is about power you know you've got this little insecure guy and he's there on the keyboard leaving comments on youtube videos or whatever and he makes something he says something and then the person in the video or the writer of the article or whatever then responds and he's like ah, i made them respond to me you know and that's what he's getting off on yeah. so and we can feel that so when you respond even if you come out with something really good or or witty on some level Unless you completely owned the other guy with something really good, you still are responding because someone else made you do it. Mm. An instant sort of power imbalance there. So when you pull away from that, it feels good. Like you said, because it's like, I don't have to respond to you. Who the fuck are you? Yeah, I love that. That, that. That's an internal boundary that you can set. Like even just talking, I can see that I can set that boundary now that's now in me just from this conversation to go, huh, when I get challenged, I don't have to respond. I don't have to engage. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's cool. And what, how do you uh, work with men and what have you got coming up? Um, so I work uh, in a capacity like this, so Skype and phone stuff. Uh, I prefer physical one-to-one because I work so much with the body and it's not just through the unarmed combat. Um, I use 
elements of qigong and bioenergetics type things and all of that stuff that I'm constantly feeling my way through and learning myself. So that's my, my favorite way to do that. But I've started to, I've been doing self-defense workshops for, for like 10 years plus, but I've got my first men's workshop in March. So that's uh, purely everybody coming. I've had self-defense workshops and they're increasingly becoming this way where people come to learn self-defense, but they leave having felt they got something a bit more, a bit yeah. more personal. Yeah. But this is the first one I'm running where it's like, no, you're coming for the shift. Mm. <laughs> and we'll learn a little bit of fighty stuff, but you're actually you're coming mostly for the, the personal development stuff. So that's that's gonna be interesting. And um, I'm really, really looking forward to that. It's some of the, the deepest stuff I do all in one kind of workshop. And that's on the uh, 25th of March here in London. That's great. In London. And is there a website or a link that we can go to to learn more about you and the event? Yeah, um, so my own website, uh, sharifhjoinson.com. You have show notes and stuff? Do I need yeah, to spell well, it show out? notes. No, you don't have to spell it out. We'll, put it, we'll oh. spell it out. It'll be funny, but you don't have to. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, put it in the, uh, we'll put it in the notes as well. Yeah, links and stuff. Yeah, it's all yeah. there. And um, I'm on Facebook. And uh, best thing, rather than I don't do groups, Facebook groups really well, and I suck at those. So just friend request. Yeah, place. nice. Okay, cool. And I'm interested to hear your example of this because we've touched on it a little bit, but it's about the the dark side. And you said, mm. you know, with the event coming up, there's going to be some context around the dark side of me and the dark side of the masculine. What's your dark side? And have you found a way to embrace your dark side in a healthy way? Yeah, that's um, that's really what I'm doing all the time. I would I would say, and that's sort of what the the sword practice is is about for me as well quite directly, because again, it's a sort of killing thing and all of that. But I'm thinking about your, your question. So there's the bigger picture of the dark. And so the workshop I'm doing is actually revealing the dark masculine is the, the name of the workshop. And we all have dark in us. There's a dark feminine, dark masculine. I happen to be a men's coach, so it's the dark masculine in this case. And what that means is dark doesn't mean bad, doesn't mean negative or unwanted. It's just the yin to the yang it's the other end of the spectrum of of light you know and the way that shows up in the masculine is in life in boundaries for example the ability to go after what you want in life and this sort of feeling that of slaying of killing and all of that stuff just like in we have this language in business you know i really killed it at work today you know i made a killing but uh in the office or financially and, and stuff. So that's the dark. And through a whole series of social, political happenings over the last few hundred years, that's become deeply suppressed in everybody. And in men, the way that shows up is when you suppress the dark, when there's shame around it, when you feel shame for your more masculine instincts, things around revolving around violence and sex uh, normally, then it festers and it becomes unhealthy. And then you get Harvey Weinstein's. You get situations like that with this kind of ear creepiness and it, it manifests in this gross kind of way. If that person had not been felt, uh, been made to feel shame around their darkness, it would, they wouldn't suppress it and then it wouldn't stagnate and fester like that and it would come out in a, in a healthy way. 
That's the dark side from my understanding in terms of human beings. What's my dark side? I mean, is it, but before you go into that, is it as you bring stuff out of the dark side into the light, does that make it not the dark side anymore? I don't think so, no. I think it's um, you shine the light of consciousness on the darker parts of you and integrate them into you. You are a spectrum of light and dark. You are open, but you also have closure. You are love and you are also destruction. You are the the god and goddess of birth and rebirth and destruction and and everything. All of that is in you. And so... um, it's interesting you ask that question because that's a typically, sorry to say, and you know I'm guilty of this too, a, a Western mindset, mm. to, which is how do you get rid of it? Turn the devil into an angel, right? Yeah. Whereas the Eastern take of it, of things is kind of you are demons and angels, you are the devil and God and everything all together. So, so good know? and bad doesn't come into it; it's just polarity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, mm. yeah. You may continue with your dark side. <laughs> Thank you. Um, then you've got another concept, which is like the shadow, mm. which is from more like Jungian psychology. And, and that basically means the darker aspects of your ego and the neurotic and narcissistic ways that that shows up. And, you know, we don't even have time to go into how much of that I have. But uh, I'll tell you something I've been thinking about lately is something that I shone a light on uh, just last year quite intensely is my mistrust of men. And I'm, I'm still working on this consciously literally every day. So what that, that shows up for in me is every single man that I encounter on some level even now unconsciously, but I, again, I'm mindful of it. So it's, it's not, uh, I'm not acting out on it, but I'm sizing myself up against all men. Mm. And, you know, I, I've, I've really worked on it a lot. So I've stopped sort of trying to be lift. I've stopped lifting weights for uh, like six months now because I realized how obsessed I was with having to be stronger. I might not be able to be bigger than most men because I'm quite a small guy, but at least I can look stronger, I can be stronger and maybe have a better physique than that guy and I want to be smarter than that guy and more funny than him and all of this kind of stuff used to show up quite quite badly and it's still there in me but I'm, I'm working on it and the, the origin of that and the, the way that that doesn't have power over me anymore is because I've uncovered sort of where it comes from and um, what came up for me in, in my sort of introspection was my childhood and specifically you'd think it was mostly about my dad, right? Like mostly about having to be stronger than him, being able to protect my mom against my dad and all of that stuff. And I thought that was it for years. It wasn't until I realized it, it wasn't really about him. It was more about or largely about the boyfriends that my mom had following him and these men coming into my home when I was five six years old yeah scary yeah fucking scary man because it's like i don't know this guy mom why are you bringing this man in here i don't feel safe but i just wasn't able to she probably couldn't defend if he decided to turn on the family she probably couldn't stop him yeah exactly and i'll go a little deep with you here this is a something that it's kind of a memory that i don't know if i repressed it or what but um it came up last year 
And I'd never really thought about it before. I'd never given it much thought. But one of these men, he actually exposed himself to me. Mm. And, you know, I was, I didn't really understand it at the time. But now, and I don't think it was an accident. You know, I think this guy was doing some creepy shit. And yeah, I explored that a lot. And fucking hell, man, that was the sort of anger in me because I have kids. I have a, a boy who, you know, I have a son and a daughter. My son works very often as like a, a metaphor for my own childhood because he looks like I did as a, as a kid and he's a boy, so I can relate to him. Yeah. But both of my children, I'm very grateful for the fact that their mum doesn't do what my mum did. So they have no contact with whatever love life she has going on. They know nothing of it. She doesn't bring that to them. And I'm, I'm really quite grateful for that. But the idea of like some guy, one day, if she, you know, settles down with somebody else, there will be a man in the household with my kids. And that's going to be an interesting one for me to work with because mm. the fucking like mistrust around that. And I think any man would have that, you know, but I've actually experienced as a child having a dangerous man, potentially, in my household you know, who was brought in by my mum. So, yeah, uncovering that, man, that really explained a lot for me in terms of my mistrust of men and basically my obsession for a long time with just this epic sort of um, pursuing of being able to, essentially, if I had to kill any man that comes into my life. You know, and, that, and it's weird because throughout my adult life, if I'm ever in the presence of a man where I can feel like, I wouldn't want to fight him. I'm acutely aware of when I'm in the presence of somebody who could physically dominate me, either because of their size or just they're, they're kind of aggressive, more aggressive than me or whatever. And I'm like, okay, you're alpha. Just keep the sword close by. That's it, you know? Mm. Yeah, so, uh, so yeah, I've got, I've got lots of dark shit, man. But that's, uh, that's something that I uncovered relatively it's one of the, It's a very unique one. I haven't heard that before. So I appreciate you and usually people are um, as willing to go that deep into it. So I really appreciate you saying that. I'm not willing. <laughs> I force myself. <laughs> nice. Yeah, well, it's in service. I appreciate it. Sharif, thank you for doing this. I appreciate Thanks you so that. much. And thank you for the work that you do and the unique flavor that you bring to the personal development that you do. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks for making me talk about my darkest shit. <laughs> You're welcome. It's, you can be safe in the knowledge that's captured on the internet for the rest of eternity. Excellent. <laughs> Praise God. Thanks, brother. There you have it, folks. My conversation with the wonderful Sharif Joynton. I hope you've enjoyed the show today. If you did, share it around on Facebook. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. And if you think somebody would enjoy the show, pass it on to them. I'd appreciate you forever. And check out Sharif's website, Sharif H. Joynton. Com, and I'll be back next week with episode 49 of The Nathan Seawood Show. That was The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. This episode has been brought to you by my friends at Unsettled. Unsettled is a 30-day co-working retreat experience for entrepreneurs, creatives, freelancers, and folks going through intentional transitions. They have incredible retreats all around the world, Portugal, Bali, Colombia, Nicaragua, just to name a few. I did Medellin in Colombia last year, blew my mind. A great bunch of people there, lots of really 
cool local experiences, beautiful office to work from, a lovely apartment. They organize it all, guys. So go to beunsettled.co slash Nathan, and I'm going to get you $100 off your first trip. So do yourself a favor. Check out beunsettled.co slash Nathan and prepare for one of the best months of your life.